in 2019, tidying up with, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Well, you notice that our passage begins with a statement For I, the Lord, don't change. I do not change. And then a conclusion that is the result of that statement. Therefore, that is in light of the fact that the Lord doesn't change, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Marie Kondo premiered on Netflix to national and international acclaim. The premise of the show is the organizational prowess of Marie Kondo applied to various families or individuals. So episode one is entitled Tidying with Toddlers. And episode two is The Empty Nesters. Throughout the Emmy-nominated show's season, Kondo applies her, her clean techniques, her tidying techniques, and, and you know, guests are surprised at how her method can clean their home despite their Initial reluctance. So it came as a surprise to many when Kondo, now a mother of three, recently stated, after I gave birth to my second daughter, I let go of my need for perfection altogether. I am busier than ever after having my third child, so I have grown to accept that I cannot tidy every day. And that is okay. Well, of course, this led to a sigh of relief to people like me. Uh, Yet others weren't so pleased with the change. Uh, Filmmaker Sarah Pauly tweeted, where is the official apology to those of us who she influenced to make our clothes into little envelopes when we had three children? A joke, but a frustrated one. You see, Pauly and many others, uh, perhaps in small ways, they changed their lives based on the counsel of this woman based on her advice. They depended on her, they took her at her word, and yet just a few years later, with some slightly different circumstances, things changed. Friends, I wonder if you've ever thought about what it would mean for God to change. We just sang, great is thy faithfulness, reveling in God's steadfast and faithful love. Yet what if he wasn't faithful? What if God's counsel, God's word, what if God's promises changed? It's one thing to depend upon someone for their cleaning advice. It's another thing entirely when heaven and hell hang in the balance. That's what we'll consider this morning as we look at Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. So I'd encourage you to turn there now. If you have a Bible, we have Bibles over at the table as well if you don't have one. Uh, The book of Malachi was written around 460 BC. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, The Lord had raised up the prophet to preach to a disillusioned and disappointed nation. 
Uh, You see, the Lord had made incredible promises of blessing to Abraham around 2000 BC, and these began to come dramatically true around 1400 BC when the Lord saved Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, out of slavery, out of Egypt. And then at Mount Sinai, right before uh, Israel entered into the promised land, God promised that Israel would continue to enjoy covenant blessings if they obeyed. If they failed to obey, they would suffer the curses. That's what we, Mel read for us from Deuteronomy 28. And basically, the next 900 years uh, of Israel's history is them failing to keep God's word. And sure, every once in a while, they would have a good king and a revival of true religion. But basically, the nation's history was one of persistent relational injustice and religious idolatry. Despite the Lord warning them and disciplining them and and the curses beginning to fall, Israel refused to repent. They refused to turn away from their sin. And so in 586 BC, the final and climactic curse of the covenant fell as the Lord raised up the Babylonians in King Nebuchadnezzar to sack the city of Jerusalem and carry the Israelites into captivity. Okay, so this is like a worst case scenario. Like ISIS invaded and conquered Jerusalem and they were subject to slavery for 70 years. And yet the Lord again showed mercy because in 537 BC, about 50 years later, he caused a remnant of Israelites to return home from Babylon to Jerusalem. He graciously restored them and promised to be with them. But over the next few decades from 537 to Malachi's day in 460, well, Israel began to grow increasingly disillusioned with God and his promises. Because, you know, Israel was glad to be back in the promised land, but things looked bleak. Their crops were failing. Their Davidic king, their supposed savior, was nowhere to be seen. Their enemies oppressed them. Their leaders were corrupt. And the God who said, I will be with you and I will bless you, well, God seemed entirely absent. Had he forgotten his promises? Had God changed? It's in this context that we come to the book of Malachi. Chapter one began with an affirmation of God's love for his people. He says, I've loved you. They say, how have you loved us? Uh, And then actually the the evidence of their doubt is in chapters one and two. We saw their half-hearted worship and their corrupt priesthood. Last week, we considered how the nation did not fear God. They didn't reverence and respect him and worship him. uh, And that led them to mistreat one another and take advantage of one another, especially in divorce. And so we arrive at our passage this morning. We're just kind of walking through the book of Malachi. We did 24 weeks in Mark. We're now in week five of six in Malachi. So we're in Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. We'll just kind of have one point. And the main idea of our passage is simply this. The Lord desires to bless his obedient people. The Lord desires to bless his obedient people. Look with me at Malachi 3, beginning in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. 
That is, judgment has not totally fallen. You're not destroyed. That's the conclusion. You are not destroyed. And the reason is because God is unchanging. What we read about in Article 11 in the Canons of Dort. It's about 500-year-old confession of faith. Uh, To put it negatively, if the Lord did change, Israel would be consumed by now. Uh, Why is the Lord referring to his unchangeable nature as a source of comfort and security for the Israelites? Uh, Well, this is meant as an allusion to the second verse in the book of Malachi. Uh, So just turn back a page in your Bible. Malachi 1-2. The end of the verse, you notice it says, I have loved Jacob. We considered this a few weeks ago, how the Lord had sovereignly set his affection on Jacob and not Jacob's brother Esau, not because Jacob was such a swell guy, not because Jacob deserved God's blessing, but simply because God had chosen in his sovereign love to set his delight upon Jacob. And so to return to Malachi 3.6, when the Lord says, I don't change, therefore you are not consumed, O children of Jacob, the Lord is reminding Israel of why he has persevered in doing good to them. It's because he had made promises to Jacob. It's because he loved Jacob and was being faithful to his word that he had given to Jacob. And that's relevant because of how verse 7 begins. Right? It reads, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Basically, God's saying, you know, you should have been consumed. You've not kept your end of the bargain, O Israel. I am the faithful God, even though you have been faithless. If not for God's unchangeable nature, Israel would be toast. They'd be done for. But praise God, he is unchanging. He is faithful to his word. Sometimes theologians refer to this as God's immutability. His immutability. It's the fact that God doesn't change. His character and nature and attributes don't undergo evolution or development. Right? So God is all-powerful, which means he can't grow in power. Because he's already all-powerful. And he can't decrease in power. He is all wise, all righteous, all holy, all loving. He doesn't change. He couldn't be more righteous or gracious or holy or loving than he currently is. Uh, Of course, God, the way he he reacts to situations changes, whether or not we sin, right? He's grieved by that. He rejoices when people trust in Christ. Uh, But to state that God doesn't change, it's not to say that God is a stoic in the heavens, but it is to state that God is reliable. And and praise God for it, because the history of Israel was basically a history of their unreliable behavior, right? Uh, What might the Lord have been referring to when he said, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside? Well, it could have been Israel's unbelief or grumbling and complaining or sinful fear of God, or idolatry and false worship, or sinful fear of circumstances, not taking God at his word, sexual immorality, not inquiring of his ways, child sacrifice, not resting in God, stealing from the poor, opposing the sojourner, defrauding widows and orphans, abusing religion and political authority, half-hearted worship, adultery, lying, divorce. I mean, you name it. Like Israel's history is kind of like a what not to do. 
a never-ending list of ways to turn aside from God's statutes. And yet God would not renege on his promise. He was showing steadfast love and unchanging commitment to Jacob and Jacob's children. And so therefore, how should Israel respond? Well, you see it in the middle of verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Israel's problem was that they had gone wayward in sin. And yet in response to Israel's sins, yes, God wants them to turn away from their sins. But most fundamentally, do you notice what God says? He desires them to return to him. He says, return to me. Like the father of the prodigal son. The father of a wayward child doesn't care about the totaled car. His chief concern is not the spoiled inheritance. It's not the broken windows. What does the father want? His son. He wants his son back. He wants the relationship with his child back. And beloved, so it is with God. God is not after your begrudging external obedience. That's not what he wants. He wants you. He wants to be in covenant relationship with you. And that is why killing our sin is so important. That's why we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh, because it is sin that separates us from God. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned? It did two things. It did a lot of things, but at this point, it did two things, right? It led Adam and Eve to hide from God, And it led God to cast them out of his presence. And so it is with us. Uh, Sin separates us from God. And thus, precisely because God is after a relationship with him, uh, we need to fight against anything that would obstruct or inhibit that relationship. 1 John 2, 3 states, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you need to keep putting your sin to death. But we need to always remember that growth in the Christian life is ultimately about returning to God, not to some moral code. All right? So if if you want to know what Christianity is about, it's not about observing a set of behaviors. It's about growing in our love and relationship with God. Should Israel return to God, the result will be glorious. Do you notice? Return to me, and I will sit back and see if you're worthy. Is that what God says? No, return to me, and I will return to you. You know, in the story of the prodigal son, this is what makes Jesus' parable so moving. You remember the son goes to his father. He says, hey, I want my inheritance. Basically, I wish you were dead so I could have your cash. He goes to a far country spends the money, squanders his inheritance, and then realizes, ah, I kind of ruined my life. Here's what I'll do. I need to go back home kind of and earn my keep. I'll I'll go be a servant and I'll, I'll try to earn my way back with my father. But friends, do you remember what happens? When the father sees his son coming in Luke 15, he isn't standoffish. He doesn't wait for the son to prove how genuine his repentance really is. What does the father do? He runs out and hugs him. 
and kisses him and celebrates with joy. What has the son done to deserve that behavior? Nothing. No, 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 nothing. The point is not that the son has now earned his way back into his father's good graces. The fact is the father is returning to him because of his great love. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to repent. This is what it means to come to Christ, to become a Christian. It is to return to God, not earning our way back, but God returning to us because of his great love. Sadly, Israel remains as recalcitrant as ever. So we read at the the end of verse seven, but you say, how shall we return? It's like uh, when a parent says to their kids, okay, please apologize. And then the child says, for what? You know, it's like, you don't know what is going on here? Well, so the Lord says, uh, return to me, I'll return to you. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now, in the law of Moses, God was really clear that the Israelites were supposed to give a tenth, that is a tithe, of all their produce to the Lord. There were some additional offerings they were supposed to do on top of that 10%. So scholars calculated it was probably closer to 20% of a worker's income. And the primary functions of the religious tithing was threefold. You know, first, it was literally meant as a sacrifice to show dedication to God. Uh, So God, I'm going to sacrifice this bull, not because it's unhealthy and not strong and wouldn't be helpful, but God, because I value you more than it. You know, this will be able to help me plow my fields, plant my crops, provide for my family. But God, I'm trusting you I'm entrusting my family and my future to you rather than this bull. It was meant to show the supreme worth of God. So first, tithing was meant as a sacrifice uh, to God. Second, the sacrifices were meant to sustain Israel's priesthood. So when Israel entered into the promised land, God divvied up the uh, allotments of land to the 12 tribes of Israel, except the Israelites, or rather the Levites. The Levites didn't get a a portion of land because they weren't to live off their own farming and their own cattle raising, but the the farming, the cattle raising, the sacrifices, uh, they were literally to eat and live off of the sacrifices offered by the rest of the nation. And then third, the Israelites were meant to tithe as a means to support the poor. Uh, So at their festivals and feasts, they weren't to exclude the lowly, but include them. You know, if you couldn't afford a sacrifice, It doesn't mean that you get shut out. You're still supposed to come in and people are to be generous and share. Yet Israel had failed to do these things. And the result was simple yet devastating. Look at verse 9. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me the whole nation of you. Because Israel refused to entrust themselves to God and because they walked contrary to his commands, the curse fell on them. Okay, so uh, I quibble a little bit with the ESV translation, which is basically great, but the Hebrew has a, a definite article there at the beginning of the sentence. It's not just a curse, not just a generic curse. No, Israel has fallen under the curse. The curses of Deuteronomy 28. 
they were again experiencing the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. You know, and this was so frustrating and so devastating because Israel had just gotten back into the promised land. They had just gotten out from under the curses of the covenant. After centuries of prophets and warnings in the beginning of the curses, culminating in the exile, by Malachi's day in 460 BC, you would have think, you would have thought, they had learned their lesson. You would have thought that they'd seen the, the judgment and the cursing and the discipline that results from sin, and so they would have turned away from it and lived in God's blessed presence but it was not so. Israel had fallen into the same trap of sin and thus experienced the same result, God's judgment and God's curse. And so friend, if, if there's one thing to take away from this lesson, this sermon, I think it would be this. Uh, from Genesis to Malachi, the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, it's basically shouting one lesson. There's actually a lot of lessons, but we'll, for our purposes, again, we'll summarize one thing. It is that God desires to bless his obedient people, but the problem is there are no obedient people. The problem is there are no faithful human partners. You remember Adam and Eve, God blessed them, set them in a perfect garden, and they fell into sin, incurring God's curse. Cain, their first son, fell into murderous sin, and thus was cursed. Noah, a few chapters later, God starts over. Noah, God blesses Noah, and he falls into sin. And then you get to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. You get from Joshua to Samuel, from Saul to King David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, Isaiah, Jonah, Malachi, Daniel. Guys, the, the message of the Old Testament is that you and I, all people everywhere, we, by our disobedience, we cannot keep God's law we incur the curses and judgment of God because of our disobedience. Adam couldn't keep the law. God started over with Noah. He couldn't keep the law. Abraham didn't do it. Israel failed for 900 years. God gives them a second chance. And here we are in Malachi's day, still falling short. All people everywhere in every conceivable way, despite having God's law and knowing God's commands, forfeit God's blessing, and we incur the curse of God's judgment. On our own, we cannot do it. We cannot be the obedient, blessed people that God desires because we are unable to keep the law. We deserve cursing because we're like Adam and Eve, disobedient and discontent with what God has given us. We're like Cain, murderously angry with our brothers and sisters. We're like Noah, drunken and ashamed. We lie like Abraham, get angry like Moses, lust like David, and like the nation of Israel, it doesn't matter how many chances we get. We will always earn God's curse. And thus what we need is a deliverer. We need someone to bear our curse, take it away from us. But the problem is we are all under the curse, right? So if I'm in debt and I owe a billion dollars, uh, you can't pay my debt if you're in debt too. 
and I can't pay your debt. We need someone who by their obedience wins the blessing of God and then will endure the curses of God's judgment on our behalf. We need Jesus. And that's what we considered in our assurance of pardon earlier. Uh, Jesus. Yeah, you know, we've walked contrary to God's commands. Uh, there's no use hiding our sin, right? There's just no use minimizing it. We're not feeling God. We don't ultimately fool ourselves. When we, when we try to minimize or downplay our sin, we're not helping the problem. No, our only hope for forgiveness is not that we're not really that bad. Our hope for forgiveness is in the curse bearer, Jesus Christ. Truly God and truly man, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. He didn't fail like Adam in the garden. He never succumbed to temptation like Israel or you and me. He lived to glorify God and serve those around him. And not just like externally, but internally too. He perfectly loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. He alone deserved eternal life in God's blessing. And yet because of his great love for us, he went to the cross. He laid down his life. For on the sin he bore our, on the cross he bore our sin, and in bearing our sin he bore the result of our sin, namely curse and judgment and death. As we sang earlier, he suffered in my place. He bore the wrath reserved for me. So that now for all who trust in Christ, well now all we know is grace. All we know is God's kindness and his love and his blessing. Not on the basis of our works. We've already said our, our works stink. But on the basis of Christ and his finished work on our behalf. Friends, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, now we can enjoy God's blessing and his presence. No longer awaiting judgment, but longing for the day when Christ will return and we will enjoy him forevermore. Uh, friends, if you've not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, do so today. If you want to know this joy and hope and peace and blessedness, return to God and he will return to you. Back, back in Malachi 3, uh, verse 9 states that Israel is currently a cursed people, what would it look like for them to return to God and walk in obedience? That's what verses 10 and 11 show us. Look there. God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. These are the physical material blessings that God had promised in the Mosaic covenant, right? These are the, the blessings. God was calling Israel to test his reliability and faithfulness. Now, now when God calls his people to bring in the tithe, you know, is God saying, I don't really care about your heart. I don't care about your motivations. I don't care whether you really love me or want to obey. 
Just check the box, do the externals, and we're good. Is that what God is summoning his people to? Well, no, of course. We know that for a couple of reasons. You remember in chapter 1 especially, Israel is bringing lame and sick, defiled sacrifices. And they stated in verse 13, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. Uh, Israel was reluctant and half-hearted in their worship. And God said that he was not pleased with that. Yes, they brought some sacrifices to the Lord, but it wasn't out of love or joy or gratitude. It was a begrudging obedience. And so friends, we noted that God is not glorified in begrudging obedience. Or, Or maybe a better way to put it is God is more glorified in delighted obedience than dutiful obedience. God is more glorified in delighted obedience than dutiful obedience. And and so that's so significant because in our passage, when God tells Israel to bring in the tithe, we shouldn't imagine God saying, just do the externals. I don't care if if your heart is in it. No, the whole point is that God desires us to worship him from the heart where our our external actions match our internal desires. You know, in tithing, Israel was not trying to establish their relationship with God. They weren't trying to earn their keep. They weren't trying to deserve or merit his love. No, since chapter one, verse two, Malachi has reminded us, God says, I have loved you. The foundation of Israel's relationship with the Lord was not their tithing or their obedience, but God's love. Friends, make no mistake. In your relationship with God, if you are a Christian, it is God's love that has been the foundation of your relationship, not your love. No, our love is so fickle and fleeting. Our actions are so foolish and disobedient. If our love and our obedience and our affections was the foundation of our relationship, we would have no relationship. It is God's love and his faithfulness and unchangeableness that is the basis of our relationship. That's what the Lord was calling his people to in Malachi's day, an obedient relationship of love as manifest in their tithing. We should ask, what are we to make of the physical material blessings that the Lord promised to Israel if they tithed? Do you notice that? God basically says, if you give, you'll be rich and prosperous. Friends, does that mean that you today in 2023 give to God, you should expect riches and financial prosperity. Uh, We need to pay attention here because this is where prosperity gospel preachers go off the rails and go crazy. This is where people are led to hell. Uh, When people like Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and Benny Hinn and Creflo Dollar shipwreck their faith by saying that, that God wants to bless you and all that's stopping him is your giving, and if you will give financially, usually to their ministry, uh, then God will open up the heavens and you'll be super duper rich. That you will be financially prosperous. God will just give you everything you want. Friends, this is so wrong for so many reasons. Especially the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel is wrong because it ignores this covenantal context of Malachi 3. That's why I've been so at pains trying to hammer home how Malachi 3 is specific to the nation of Israel in the Mosaic covenant a long time ago, 2,600 years ago. 
2,400 years ago, something like that. Uh, God was saying, based on the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy 28, these blessings or curses will fall on you. We are not Israelites 2,500 years ago under the Mosaic Covenant. It doesn't, this verse, apply about giving and receiving from the Lord. It doesn't apply to you and me in the exact same way. And I'm guessing that for most people in the room, they would actually be quite thankful for that, uh, where God says, I'm going to open up the heavens and give lots of rain, and you know there won't be a lot of coyotes and jackals devouring your fields. The vine will produce. I'm guessing most of us like our gardens. We don't care about them that much. Uh, it's really clear that God's promises here were specific to ancient Israel. Uh, we know that this command and these promises were issued to them then. We can't just rip this verse out of context so that we promise Christians a life of ease or plenty or financial prosperity if they just have a little more faith and give a little bit more money. For ancient Israel, if they obeyed, they were promised physical and material blessings in the here and now. For us as Christians under the new covenant, we too have been promised physical and material blessings. And actually, we've been, we've been promised way better ones a perfect universe, a glorious city, imperishable bodies. Yet we await these physical and material blessings in the new heavens and new earth. We've not been promised them in the here and now. And so we wait in faith for the day when Christ will return. Uh, the renewed crops that the Lord promised Israel were but a foretaste of the joy that we will receive when Christ comes to take us home. And so all that to say, Christians don't give in exactly the same way as ancient Israel, okay? Christians don't give in exactly the same way. How should we think through giving as Christians? Uh, let me encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We'll, we'll just spend the last few minutes there as we come to a conclusion. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is commending uh, the giving of other congregations to try to stir up the Corinthian church to do the same. And so I just want to just pick out a few principles for Christian giving as we think about, okay, how do I, as a Christian, think through what to give and why to give? Do I still give 10%? Uh, should I expect money in the mail if I do give 10%? You know, what, what's going on here? Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 9. We're, we're going to briefly consider five attributes of, of Christian giving. First, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 describes Christian giving as the grace of God. And verses 6 and 7 refer to giving as this act of grace. You see, Christian giving is fundamentally dominated by the concept of grace. It is grace that motivates Christians to give because of the grace of God in Christ, right? The fact that God hasn't counted our sins against us but has been extremely generous and merciful towards us? Well, as Paul reminds the Corinthian congregation in verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. A Christian, Christian giving is motivated by Christ's giving. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, so grace is what motivates us, the grace that we've been shown. And then that grace empowers us so that we put to death greed and selfishness. You know, in our flesh, we want to keep. 
We want to hoard, not give. Yet God, by his grace, slowly changes our affections. Uh, As in all good deeds, we are not self-empowered, but Holy Spirit empowered. God's grace strengthening us. Second, verse 2 says, Their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. In short, Christians are to be generous people. You know, even when our budgets are tight, our impulse should be, oh, extra money. Not, how can I hoard this to myself? But, how can I serve those in need? Uh, How can I advance the gospel and care for my brothers and sisters in Christ? If anyone should be generous, it should be Christians who have received God's lavish and generous love. Third, verse three states that they gave according to their means and beyond their means. If you want to come talk to me after service, we can chat about this more in detail. The short of it is, uh, Christians are no longer under the command to tithe, or Christians are not commanded to give 10%. That command was specific to the Mosaic law, and we are not under the Mosaic law. Instead, we should give according to our means and beyond our means. I I think a a good summary of this, I think a good summary of Christian giving in general, is that Christians should give generously and sacrificially. Christians should give generously and sacrificially. For some individuals or families, that might be 5%. You know, maybe they're having a hard time uh, making ends meet, and so 5% is really generous and sacrificial. You remember in the widow, Jesus commended, uh, in the temple, Jesus commended the widow who gave her last two pennies. Jesus commended her generosity and sacrificial giving. Yet for other families or individuals, uh, to give generously and sacrificially might mean that they give away 80% of their income. Okay, so so I think another way to put this would be that it's possible to give away more than 10% of your income and still be sinning. Because you should be giving away way more than that. And it's also possible for you to be giving 3% to the Lord. And that's really an act of faith that God delights in and Christ is pleased with. So so just kind of practically, uh, if you're a Christian, if you're a member here, let me encourage you. If you're not able to give 10%, uh, that's okay. If you're able to give more than 10%, praise God, that's okay. Let's all of us just be generous and sacrificial with our giving. And and then just turn the page to chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 14, to consider the the final two attributes of Christian giving. Uh, Fourth, Christians give joyfully. Chapter 9, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians reads, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, again, we saw this in Malachi 1. God doesn't want begrudging, moaning givers who talk about how wearisome obedience is. No, he wants worshipers who love him and love him more than they love their stuff. And so fifth and finally, Christians give expectantly. Unlike the ancient Israelites, we don't give with the expectation of immediate and physical and material blessings in the here and now. Well, then why do we give? Like, what are we trying to effect and accomplish as a result? Uh, Chapter 9, verse 6 begins to answer the question for us. The point is this. 
Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So there is a correlation between what we sow and what we harvest or what we reap. Is Paul saying that if you sow money into God's kingdom, you should expect a whole lot of vacations and luxury vehicles and retirement homes? Well, no. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound in every good work. Notice that God makes all grace and provision abound for you so that you abound, not in cash, not, not in your retirement fund, but so you may abound in every good work. Whereas verses 10 and 11 state, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest, not of your retirement fund, the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. In short, God enriches you with money so that you will sow it, being generous in every way and thus leading to a harvest of righteousness, which leads to praise to God. Verses 11 to 14 state, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Friends, why do we give? We give to glorify God. We give because we want him to receive honor and praise and thanksgiving. And because all that he's done for us, it is all of grace. That's why Paul ends the way he does in verse 15, this little section on giving. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The gift not only of physical material blessings in the here and now, our daily bread, but most of all, praise be to God for the inexpressible gift of his son. Jesus Christ. So Trinity Church in Bedford, uh, praise God. I thank God for you and your giving uh, these past 10 months. We are ahead of budget. So this sermon is, I'm not preaching the sermon because we're on a building campaign or we're behind budget. We're talking about giving because giving is in Malachi 3 and we just preach through books of the Bible. Uh, so let me just encourage you to keep being generous and sacrificial with your giving. Two kind of like litmus tests if you're doing that. Number one, uh, when Jonathan emailed you your year-end giving statement, did it hurt a little bit? When you get that back, it should be like, oh. be, that, that's, that feeling is the Lord lovingly prying our hands off this world. You know, us being more committed to Christ's kingdom than our own comfort. And, and then number two, if, if we're giving generously and sacrificially, are there things that you forego that maybe your peers don't, right? The whole, the whole point of giving is that it's, it's sacrificial. Are you giving anything up? Because you're supporting the gospel going out to the ends of the earth, uh, because you're caring for the, your Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. Those would just be two things to talk about, perhaps with your spouse or a friend over lunch today. All right, let's conclude. Malachi 3, 12, you don't have to turn there. The last verse of our passage reads, then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Just as chapter one described all nations as coming to recognize the greatness of the Lord, here we see that a day is coming when the blessedness of God's people will be so obvious that it will serve an evangelistic purpose. The nations, when they see God's blessing his people, they, they know how happy those people are in God and how great their God is. And so it is today. 
Not that our houses or cars or families are necessarily more prosperous than others, but people will recognize Jesus' greatness as we find him to be our highest treasure and delight. It says nothing about the glory and beauty and greatness of God if we use him to get really, really rich and spend it on ourselves. But to love and give and serve the Lord cheerfully, even at great cost to ourselves, shows that he is more valuable than, than anything money can buy. Because, brothers and sisters, the truth is that God is less concerned about the percentage that you give and more concerned about your heart, that you be sold out for Christ. The truth is we don't just give 10% of ourselves to Christ. We give our entire lives to him because that's what he's given to us. We cannot serve God and money. Either we will use God in our selfish pursuit of money or we will use money in our selfless pursuit of God. I hope that you will choose the more blessed life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you that you are so generous and kind towards us. Uh, we praise you for your love poured out through your son. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you gave your all for us and for our salvation. We pray that, that we would emulate that example uh, in our giving and in our time, in our lives, that we would live sold out for your glory because of all that you've done for us. We pray that you'd help us in this work. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.